This is the story that happy, active-looking old man in that pleasant place had written. Book One, The Comet. Chapter One, Dust in the Shadows. One, I have set myself to write the story of the great change, so far as it has affected my own life and the lives of one or two people closely connected with me, primarily to please myself. Long ago, in my crude, unhappy youth, I conceived a desire to write a book. To scribble secretly and dream of authorship was one of my chief alleviations, and I read with a sympathetic envy every scrap I could get about the world of literature and the lives of literary people. It is something even amidst this present happiness to find leisure and opportunity to take up and partially realize these old and hopeless dreams. But that alone, in a world where so much of vivid and increasing interest presents itself to be done, even by an old man, would not, I think, suffice to set me at this desk. I find some such recapitulation of my past as this will involve is becoming necessary to my own secure mental continuity. The passage of years brings a man at last to retrospection. At seventy-two, one's youth is far more important than it was at forty and I am out of touch with my youth. The old life seems so cut off from the new, so alien and so unreasonable, that at times I find it bordering upon the incredible. The data have gone, the buildings and places. I stopped dead the other afternoon in my walk across the moor, where once the dismal outskirts of Swathinglia straggled towards Leap, and asked, Was it here indeed that I crouched among the weeds and refuse and broken crockery, and loaded my revolver ready for murder. Did ever such a thing happen in my life? Was such a mood and thought and intention ever possible to me? Rather, has not some queer nightmare spirit, out of dreamland, slipped a pseudo-memory into the records of my vanished life? There must be many alive still who have the same perplexities, and I think, too, that those who are now growing up to take our places in the great enterprise of mankind will need many such narratives as mine for even the most partial conception of the old world of shadows that came before our day. It chances, too, that my case is fairly typical of the change. I was caught midway in a gust of passion, and a curious accident put me for a time in the very nucleus of the new order. My memory takes me back across the interval of fifty years, to a little ill-lit room with a sash window open to a starry sky, and instantly there returns to me the characteristic smell of that room, the penetrating odor of an ill-trimmed lamp, burning cheap paraffin. Lighting by electricity had then been perfected for fifteen years, but still the larger portion of the world used these lamps. All this first scene will go, in my mind at least, to that olfactory accompaniment. That was the evening smell of the room. By day it had a more subtle aroma, a closeness, a peculiar sort of faint pungency that I associate, I know not why, with dust. Let me describe this room to you in detail. It was perhaps eight feet by seven in area, and rather higher than either of these dimensions. The ceiling was of plaster, cracked and bulging in places, grey with the soot of the lamp, and in one place discoloured by a system of yellow and olive-green stains 
caused by the percolation of damp from above. The walls were covered with dun-colored paper upon which had been printed in oblique reiteration a crimson shape, something of the nature of a curly ostrich feather or an acanthus flower that had in its less faded moments a sort of dingy gaiety. There were several big plaster-rimmed wounds in this, caused by Parload's ineffectual attempts to get nails into the wall, whereby there might hang pictures. One nail had hit between two bricks and got home, and from this depended, sustained a little insecurely by frayed and knotted blind cord, Parload's hanging bookshelves, planks painted over with a treacly blue enamel, and further decorated by a fringe of pinked American cloth, insecurely fixed by tacks. Below this was a little table that behaved with a mulish vindictiveness to any knee that was thrust beneath it suddenly. It was covered with a cloth whose pattern of red and black had been rendered less monotonous by the accidents of Parload's versatile ink bottle, and on it, leitmotif of the whole, stood and stank the lamp. This lamp, you must understand, was of some whitish translucent substance that was neither china nor glass. It had a shade of the same substance, a shade that did not protect the eyes of a reader in any measure, and it seemed admirably adapted to bring into pitiless prominence the fact that, after the lamp's trimming, dust and paraffin had been smeared over its exterior with a reckless generosity. The uneven floorboards of this apartment were covered with scratched enamel of chocolate hue, on which a small island of frayed carpet dimly blossomed in the dust and shadows. There was a very small grate made of cast iron in one piece, and painted buff, and a still smaller misfit of a cast-iron fender that confessed the grey stone of the hearth. No fire was laid, only a few scraps of torn paper and the bowl of a broken corn-cob pipe were visible behind the bars, and in the corner, and rather thrust away, was an angular japanned coal-box with a damaged hinge. It was the custom in those days to warm every room separately from a separate fireplace more prolific of dirt than heat, and the rickety sash window, the small chimney, and the loose-fitting door were expected to organize the ventilation of the room among themselves without any further direction. Parlod's chucklebed hid its gray sheets beneath an old patchwork counterpane on one side of the room, and veiled his boxes and such-like oddments and invading the two corners of the window were an old whatnot and the wash-hand stand on which were distributed the simple appliances of his toilet. This washhand stand had been made of deal by someone with an excess of ternary appliances in a hurry, who had tried to distract attention from the rough economics of his workmanship by an arresting ornamentation of blobs and bulbs upon the joints and legs. Apparently the piece had then been placed in the hands of some person of infinite leisure, equipped with a pot of ochreous paint, varnish, and a set of flexible combs. This person had first painted the article, then, I fancy, smeared it with varnish, and then sat down to work with the combs to streak and comb the varnish into a weird imitation of the grain of some nightmare timber. The washhand stand so made had evidently had a prolonged career of violent use, had been chipped, kicked, splintered, punched, stained, scorched, hammered, 
desiccated, damped, and defiled, had met indeed with almost every possible adventure except a conflagration or a scrubbing, until at last it had come to this high refuge of Parload's attic to sustain the simple requirements of Parload's personal cleanliness. There were in chief a basin and a jug of water, and a slop pail of tin, and further, a piece of yellow soap in a tray, a toothbrush, a rat-tailed shaving brush, one huckaback towel, and one or two other minor articles. In those days, only very prosperous people had more than such an equipage, and it is to be remarked that every drop of water Parload used had to be carried by an unfortunate servant girl, the slavey, Parload called her, up from the basement to the top of the house, and subsequently down again. Already we begin to forget how modern an invention is personal cleanliness. It is a fact that Parload had never stripped for a swim in his life, never had a simultaneous bath all over his body since his childhood. Not one in fifty of us did in the days of which I am telling you. A chest, also singularly grained and streaked, of two large and two small drawers, held Parload's reserve of garments, and pegs on the door carried his two hats and completed this inventory of a bed-sitting-room, as I knew it before the change. But I had forgotten. There was also a chair with a squab that apologized inadequately for the defects of its cane seat. I forgot that for the moment, because I was sitting on the chair on the occasion that best begins this story. I have described Parload's room with such particularity, because it will help you to understand the key in which my earlier chapters are written. But you must not imagine that this singular equipment or the smell of the lamp engaged my attention at that time to the slightest degree. I took all this grimy unpleasantness as if it were the most natural and proper setting for existence imaginable. It was the world as I knew it. My mind was entirely occupied then by graver and intenser matters, and it is only now in the distant retrospect that I see these details of environment as being remarkable, as significant as indeed obviously the outward visible manifestations of the old world disorder in our hearts. 2. Parload stood at the open window, opera glass in hand, and sought and found and was uncertain about and lost again the new comet. I thought the comet no more than a nuisance then, because I wanted to talk of other matters, but Parload was full of it. My head was hot, I was feverish with interlacing annoyances and bitterness, I wanted to open my heart to him. At least I wanted to relieve my heart by some romantic rendering of my troubles, and I gave but little heed to the things he told me. It was the first time I had heard of this new speck among the countless specks of heaven, and I did not care if I never heard of the thing again. We were two youths much of an age together. Parload was two and twenty, and eight months older than I. He was, I think, his proper definition was engrossing clerk to a little solicitor in Overcastle, while I was third in the office staff at Rawdon's Pot Bank in Clayton. We had met first in the Parliament of the Young Men's Christian Association of Swathinglia. We had found we attended simultaneous classes in Overcastle, he in science and I in shorthand, and had started a practice of walking home together, and so our friendship came into being. Swathinglia, Clayton, and Overcastle were contiguous towns, I should mention, in the great industrial area of the Midlands. 
We had shared each other's secret of religious doubt. We had confided to one another a common interest in socialism. He had come twice to supper at my mother's on a Sunday night, and I was free of his apartment. He was then a tall, flaxen-haired, gawky youth, with a disproportionate development of neck and wrist, and capable of vast enthusiasm. He gave two evenings a week to the evening classes of the organized science school in Overcastle, physiography was his favorite subject, and through this insidious opening of his mind, the wonder of outer space had come to take possession of his soul. He had commandeered an old opera glass from his uncle, who farmed at Leet over the moors. He had bought a cheap paper planisphere and Whittaker's almanac, and for a time day and moonlight were mere blank interruptions to the one satisfactory reality in his life, stargazing. It was the deeps that had seized him, the immensities and the mysterious possibilities that might float unlit in that unplumbed abyss. With infinite labor and the help of a very precise article in the heavens, a little monthly magazine that catered for those who were under this obsession, he had at last got his opera glass upon the new visitor to our system from outer space. He gazed in a sort of rapture upon that quivering little smudge of light among the shining pinpoints and gazed. My troubles had to wait for him. Wonderful, he sighed, and then, as though his first emphasis did not satisfy him, wonderful. He turned to me. Wouldn't you like to see? I had to look, and then I had to listen. How that this scarce visible intruder was to be, was presently to be, one of the largest comets this world has ever seen. How that its course must bring it within at most so many score of millions of miles from the earth, a mere step, Pollard seemed to think that, how that the spectroscope was already sounding its chemical secrets, perplexed by the unprecedented band in the green, how it was even now being photographed in the very act of unwinding, in an unusual direction, a sunward tail which presently it wound up again, and all the while in a sort of undertow I was thinking first of Nettie Stewart, and the letter she had just written me, and then of old Rawdon's detestable face as I had seen it that afternoon. Now I planned answers to Nettie, and now belated repartees to my employer, and then again Nettie was blazing all across the background of my thoughts. Nettie Stewart was daughter of the head gardener of the rich Mr. Verrill's widow, and she and I had kissed and become sweethearts before we were eighteen years old. My mother and hers were second cousins and old schoolfellows, and though my mother had been widowed on